Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. How's everybody feeling today? Good, 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 man. Today's going to be exciting today. It's Baptism Sunday at Discover Church. Come on, somebody. Well, so good to see you guys today. I'm glad that you're here. Hey, I want to start off today and just kind of, kind of just take a little bit of a moment um, right off the bat. There's, there's been some things that have happened in our world in the last week, and I think sometimes um, we as a church can sometimes make too big of a deal out of things that are happening in the world. And sometimes I think that we can just turn a blind eye to what's happening in the world because we got our own thing going. But, but with the events of this last week with Russia and Ukraine, I know it, um, I know it stirs up a lot of different emotions. For some people, there's indifference. You know, why, why should I care? Why does this matter? How does it affect me? For some people, there's anger at, um, what's going on and anger maybe at, at, at political leaders and what's going on. For some, there's sadness when you see the images of people that are, that are caught uh, in, in the crossfire of it. And, and for other, there's fear, um, particularly for those that are old enough to remember the Cold War and, and growing up doing all of the duck and cover drills and those kinds of things. And so I just want to start off today and, and just say, listen, we don't have our head in the, buried in the sand. We know that, that there's a lot more happening in the world than just what's happening right here at Discover Church, right here in our, our own city. I just want to offer two quick thoughts to us. Number one, um, I just want to encourage all of us, regardless of what the emotion is that you've been feeling this week, just take a big deep breath and let it out and be reminded that our, we serve a God who is the king above all kings. And he sits on his throne and that hasn't changed in the last week. And that king said that things would get worse before they get better when he comes back to rule and reign with perfection and righteousness and when wickedness will be judged immediately. I think sometimes we forget that when we see what's going on in the world. The second thing I want to remind us today is just to remind us that prayer is a powerful, powerful weapon. And, um, you know, we had some discussion internally, you know, we've gotten to the point now in the social media world where something happens it, there's almost this pressure now that if a church doesn't say pray for whatever, then it's like, well, y'all don't really love those people then. And, uh, and so we just talked about it a little bit and it's, it's not that, you know, we didn't eventually post something, but we want to try to help equip you to know how to pray. And so maybe if, you, if you're not following us on social media, you can find us at Discover Church KC um, or at Discover Church underscore KC, I think is what it is. I don't remember. Um, type in Discover Church KC and you'll find us. And uh, we, just, we just wanted to give you some things about how to specifically target your prayers. And I just want to get started today, um, just as a faith family, if it's okay, to maybe just lift our hands up like this to the God who's still on his throne and spend a moment in prayer about the things that are happening. If this was happening in our world, if this was happening in the Northland, I promise you it would bother us in a way that's different than maybe what it bothers us when it's across the world. I just want to take a moment today in prayer together. If you're comfortable, just kind of open your hands like this as we pray to God. Jesus, we come to you today and we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, nothing happens in this world that surprises you or catches you off guard. And nothing will ever happen in this world that will not one day encounter your justice. God, I ask that you would be with the situation that's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the political leaders that are involved. I pray, God, that, that they would, their eyes would be open to see and follow you. 
God, I ask that, that they would have a willingness to, 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 to pursue what it is that you want for this world and what you want for our lives. God, I pray for the people, the innocent people that are caught in the crosshair. Lord, would you intervene? Would you protect? Would you guide? God, I pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine. The, bro- the, the, the churches that are gathered together today in Ukraine. As they continue to worship you, God, I'm inspired and motivated by their faith. Lord, I ask that you would, you would strengthen their faith and you would strengthen their resolve and that they would have a deeper commitment to you. And I pray that they would be mobilized in the midst of this situation to be able to shine brightly the love and the light of Jesus as they go out to try to meet the needs of people around them. And as they meet the needs of those around them, Lord, I ask that you would, you would allow them to be able to not only help in the physical, but God, that you would give them doors of opportunity to talk about the greatest need that we all have, the spiritual darkness in our souls, and that this would serve as an opportunity where you would draw people to yourself into new life in you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And all the church said, amen, amen, amen. Well, listen, the stages of this week really kind of set the, the stage for the significance of what we're talking about in our Never Settle, Never Settle series. Now, at the beginning of this, I issued a challenge. I issued a challenge. I asked you to be here all six weeks to join a small group uh, and to begin praying. And I'm just curious, if you have been here all three weeks so far, if you, week one, week two, and now week three, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Keep it up just for a second. Man, that's a really big deal because there's a lot going on in this world. If you are looking around, I'm not trying to cast any shade on anybody, but if you are looking around and somebody next to you has their hand raised, you give them a high five and say, nice job. Nice job. Hey, if you're watching right now online, you don't have a way to get to us in person. Hey, if you've been with us every single week, let us know in the chat. We're going to give you some high fives in the chat right now, uh, but we just want to say thank you. Here's the reason why we've invited you, why I challenged you to be here each week of this, of this series, because what God is laying in front of us is not just a vision. It's not just initiatives that God is calling the organization of Discover Church to. What God is laying in front of us is an invitation to each one of us on an individual basis to consider what would it look like to take a new step of faith, to make a decision that I'm never going to settle, to continue in the pioneering faith so that we can continue to be a part of the movement of Jesus that's been going for the last 2,000 years. That's what this series is about. That's what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to steward the vision that God has given me and trying to share it with you because the vision is over the next two years, God is inviting us. He's calling us. He's putting in front of us the task to see 250 people's lives changed by Jesus in the next two years. That's what God's calling us to do. And so what we did last week is, is we began to unpack the very first initiative, the first of four initiatives in our Never Settle campaign. And it is this, that we're going to equip every person at Discover Church with tools for practical personal evangelism. All right, we talked about this last week that the Great Commission is not instructions given to an institution, but instructions given to individuals. Right? And in the same vein, as we continue to walk this out over these next few weeks, we're going to continue to see the same thing, that it's an invitation that Jesus is extending to us on an individual basis. And as we dive into this a little bit further today, what we're going to see is we're going to see the second of our four initiatives that I'm going to unpack today in a message that I've titled, The Lost, The Least, 
and the left behind. If you have your guidebooks, you can open those up. We, you can take notes there uh, so you can kind of keep track of this and you can jump into it. You also find some discussion questions when you get in your small groups and then we're sending some supplementary uh, questions as well to all of our small group leaders so they can, they can help carry the conversation a little bit deeper. Now, when we read the account of Jesus in the Bible, we, we learn a lot about him, thankfully. There's a lot of things about Jesus that are uh, really encouraging. For instance, we, we learn that he prayed, which is, which is a good thing. We learn that he taught people about the Bible. He walked a lot, like a whole lot. He rode on boats from time to time. Uh, he attended parties and gatherings. He was a fun guy, right? Regardless of what a lot of what the culture tries to say, Jesus was not a stick in the mud. Jesus knew how to have fun. He ate, praise God. And one of my favorite parts that we learn about Jesus is that he also took naps. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, especially if you've got young children. Lord, help us. But one of the most inescapable things that we find about him is that he performed miracles. And he performed scores of miracles all throughout uh, that's recorded for us in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, and then elsewhere it tells us in John that, that, that what's been recorded here is just the tip of the iceberg of all the things that Jesus did. And as I was studying this last week, I began to notice um, a, a common thread that wove together many of the miracles that Jesus performed. And I want to share just a couple quick verses, a couple quick instances. And I want to see if you can catch the common thread. And I never thought about this before until I was reading through this today. In Matthew chapter 14, in an occasion when Jesus healed numerous sick people, sick people, it says this. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. In Matthew 15, on an occasion when he fed 4,000 people, it says this, now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat and I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. In Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus healed a, a few men who were blind, it says this in verse 34. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. In Mark chapter one, when he healed someone who had leprosy, which was a skin disease with boils and pus that would come out, it's very painful, very disgusting. Mark 141 says this, then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to them, I am willing, be cleaned. In Mark chapter five, when Jesus cast a score of demons, a legion of demons out of a man and into the pigs, he sent him away and he said this in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Last one in Luke chapter seven, when Jesus healed and raised the, 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 the dead son of a widow, the, the body was in a coffin. Jesus sees the situation unfolding and he comes to them, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he brought her dead son back to life. I'm curious, do you see the common thread? It's compassion. It's compassion. Jesus modeled a life for us of compassion. When Jesus was living on, his, on this world, when he would walk across the towns and the communities and the, and the places that he went, he would often come across people who could be categorized as either the lost, the least, or the left behind. 
And Jesus did something that was altogether different than what the religious leaders of his day would do. The religious leaders of his day, when they would encounter these people, they would often see them, they would respond to them, they would acknowledge them, and they would have pity on them. But what Jesus did is Jesus had compassion. What's the difference? Pity says, man, that's really bad for you, I'm sorry, and then you keep on walking. Compassion says, that's really bad, I'm sorry, and you offer to help. Let me phrase it in a different way, and you can write this down in your notes. Perhaps this will make it more clear. Pity is a feeling. Compassion is an action. Pity is a feeling. Compassion is an action. Now, before all the word Nazis get after me and go, well, compassion's technically a feeling as well. Just let me have this one, okay? All right? Because pity never drives anybody to action. But compassion will. Jesus challenged the religious system because of the way that he lived. The religious leaders would see people in need, the lost, the least, and the left behind, and they would often do nothing. In fact, instead, they had developed laws and rituals that they had to abide by so that they would not get too close to the lost, the least, and the left behind. But Jesus shows up and he seeks out the lost, the least, and the left behind, and we constantly find him spending time with them. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees are constantly upset because of what he did. Jesus challenged the religious system because he did what many teachers of his day would not do. But not only did he challenge the system, he changed the way that his followers lived. I want to give you an example in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we learn a story about a woman who dies. Now, if you're familiar with this story in Acts chapter 9, then it is probable that you're familiar with it because it's the first time that we find that one of the disciples brings a dead person back to life in a manner similar to what Jesus did on a handful of occasions. Oftentimes, and even in myself, I've read this passage of scripture and I've said, okay, there's the first miracle. Move on, move on to the next thing. But I began, God brought me to this passage this week and he, he, he peeled the onion back. He peeled the layers back and allowed me to see this text in a brand new way today. And I'm excited to share it with you because lost in the understanding of this incredible miraculous thing that Peter does to bring this dead woman back to life, what gets skipped over is the woman, the way that she lived, the faith that she had, and the impact her faith had on the world that was around her. You see, I believe that sometimes when we read the Bible, we can see all the big things that Jesus does and the disciples do and the, the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament do, and we can think, well, I'm just, I'm just Jernigan. I can't, you know, what can I do? I'm not Peter, I'm not Paul, I'm not David. But if we will take care to notice, God has tucked away so many stories of common, everyday, jacked up, busted up people that have been changed by Jesus that God uses, maybe not to change the whole world, but he uses them in the world that they live in to change somebody's world. And we're gonna see this unfold today in Acts chapter nine, and we're gonna be in verse 36. If you're with me, let me hear you say, I'm with you. Acts chapter nine, it says this, at Joppa, that's a town. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. One is a Hebrew name, one is a Jewish name. I promise you, if I had either of these names, I would go by Tabitha. This woman was full of good works 
and charitable deeds, which she did. I wanna notice a couple of things. Number one, it says that she was a disciple of Jesus. What does this mean? It means that she had heard about the extravagant love of Jesus displayed not only on the cross, but in the resurrection. She heard about the power that he had to change people's lives, to heal people from their illness and infirmities, to perform miracles and to teach with authority as if he were the son of God because he was the son of God. And she heard about the message of Jesus. Her life was radically changed and transformed. And what the Bible doesn't tell us is the Bible doesn't tell us what the before Christ's story was for Tabitha. Part of this, it should be encouraging for us because what we need to remember and what we need to understand today, and if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're here today and maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you've got questions, can I tell you, I'm so glad that you've come to this place today because this is a place that's open to anybody regardless of what you think about our Jesus. What's remarkable about the first part of this story, the fact that, that we don't get the prelude, we don't get the, 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 the precursor to her story, tells us one significant thing, that who we are before Christ doesn't matter. Because Christ died and paid for our past so that our past no longer has to define our future. He changes her life. The second thing that we notice is that she was a woman that was full of charitable works, uh, charitable deeds, good works and charitable deeds, which she did. What does that mean? Well, it means that she was so moved, she was so changed in response to the power of Jesus to change her life. She didn't just, she didn't just passively sit by for the type of Jesus, which they didn't call it Christianity then, they called it the way. She didn't choose to sit by for a passive participation in the way by going to the temple service once a week and then going home and living like nothing matters, like nothing changed. No, that's not the kind of life that she had. She had a never settled type of faith in the Jesus that changed her life. She wasn't content to just go to the temple and be a part of what happens there and then to go back home and do nothing. No, she was compelled by what she encountered, what she experienced and encountered when she was in the temple, when she was around the other disciples, so that when she went home, she had to do something. She was filled with good works and charitable deeds. Well, what were the good works that she did? Well, we don't find until a little bit later in the text. I'm gonna fast forward to the second half of verse 39 and it tells us what she did. And it says, and all the widows stood by him, that's Peter, we'll learn more about that in a second, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. What did she do? What were her good works and charitable deeds? She went back home and realized, you know what? I may not be able to, to, to feed thousands of people. I may not be able to perform miracles. But what I can do is I know how to make a good tunic. And I can make some garments like ain't nobody ever seen the garments made. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to make some clothes for some people. What this does is she's embodying one of our, our favorite verses as a church. Ephesians chapter two and verse 10, when it says, for we are his, that's Jesus's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse, we talk about this verse all the time, that, that we don't have to be some superstar. We don't have to be an all-star. We don't have to be an MVP, that God has wired you, designed you, and created you with the gifts and the passions and the talents and the abilities for a reason. And maybe your reason isn't to be known. Maybe your reason 
reason isn't to be famous. Maybe your reason why God wired you the way that he is is not so that you can be a a Jesus influencer on Instagram. Maybe the reason why God wired you and gifted you and gave you the interests and the passions and the abilities for woodworking or accounting or meal prepping or or, or landscaping or yard work or, or clothes making, maybe the reason why is because there's somebody that's in your world that needs to be blessed by what God has put in you. You see, that's what Tabitha's doing. She goes back from the temple, back to her place, and she makes clothes. But I want you to notice the significance. She doesn't just make clothes for anybody. She makes clothes for widows. Why is this important? Because in this time in history, this was a very male-dominated society. Women were expected to take care of the home and to take care of the kids and, and to do all of those kinds of things. In fact, the employment opportunities for women in this day and age, in this part of the world, were almost non-existent unless you wanted to become a lady of the night, which was incredibly dangerous, not only because you might suffer harm from the John that you are working for, but Jewish law said that any woman caught in adultery was to be stoned to death. And so out of God's goodness and out of God's grace, God established a provision in the Jewish law so that if any woman and her husband died, she was allowed to marry the brother of her husband. And the brother of her husband then was to welcome her and if she had any kids to welcome her them into her home, into his home and to provide for them and to take care of them. However, if a woman's husband were to die and her husband had no other living siblings and no other living family, then a woman would be by and large destitute. There were no prospects. There was no security. There was no employment. There was no opportunity. Tabitha knew this. She would have seen the widows in her town. Instead of looking upon them with pity, she instead looked upon them with compassion because she had heard about how Jesus looked at people with compassion and not pity. And compassion drove Jesus to action. And it was compassion that drove Tabitha to action. I want you to notice what happens as we continue in the story. The reality of it is Well, let me pause just for a second. The reality of it is, is that God, God invites us. God, God calls us. He, he gives us opportunities in our everyday, our every week life for us to be able to be this kind of person, to be a person that would follow the compassion example of Jesus, to follow the example of Tabitha. And what God's desire is, is that we would go throughout our lives. This is one of the reasons why I have such a problem with how busy we get. We get busy, busy, busy rushing from one thing to the next. And in the midst of our hurrying and in our being late, and, and, and the reason why we're hurrying and we're always running behind is because we constantly overstack our schedules. And as we overstack our schedules, running from one thing to the next to the next, I'm just curious, how many compassion moments do we miss as we're racing to the next thing that God puts in front of us so that we can just for a moment show some compassion to somebody else? What does that mean and what does it look like? I don't know. Maybe it's as simple as you holding a door open and flashing a smile and saying, hi, how are you today? Maybe it's offering to help somebody with a project around their home, knowing that they need a little bit of help. 
Maybe God would allow you as you're driving or you're walking or you're, you're scrolling through social media and you're, you're noticing that there's a pain point in our community. Maybe what God would do is God would put inside of you a burden and a recognition that, that you have been gifted something by him to do something about the problem. And maybe just maybe God would lead you to take the initiative to step into that pain point in the community and say, listen, I don't have the whole world, but I do have this little bit and I'm willing to bring this little bit into this pain point so that somebody's life could be blessed and encouraged by it. See, that's what Tabitha did. That's what God's inviting us to do. Once you notice what happened, she dies. And when she dies, the people around her feel her absence. Notice what it says in verse 37. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, there's a couple things that we could easily skate by this, but I want to provide some historical context to what's going on. They didn't have a way to preserve bodies like we do today. And a dead body begins to decay instantly, and it's just a matter of time until that body begins to develop a terrible, awful stench. And so in this era of this time in in the world, what they would do is they would take dead bodies and they would wash them and then they would wrap them with strips of cloth that have been dipped in fragrant oils and spices. In fact, historians have told us that, that they have unearthed bodies that were preserved and wrapped and prepared for death in this way where they would find sometimes north of 100 pounds of additional cloth and strips around the skeletal structure of the body in order to try to prepare the body and prevent the stench from becoming overwhelming. That's the first thing we need to know. The second thing we need to know is this. Never would anybody ever bring a dead body to an upper room of a house. The lower room of the house was the common area. The upper room was where more, it was more intimate, where people would eat and where people would sleep. So people would never bring a dead body into an upper room of a house where such personal intimate things such as sharing a meal and sharing a bed and sleeping would happen. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what these widows do with Tabitha's body. Why would they do that? We're going to find out in verse 38. It uh, it says this in verse 38, and since Lydda, which is the town next to Joppa, and, uh, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there. So they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with him. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and he knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and he lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. This would have been a remarkable situation. News began to spread immediately. In fact, verse 42 says, and it became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed on the Lord. What a miraculous thing that has happened. Not only has a dead woman been brought back to life, but it wasn't Jesus who did it. It was one of his disciples that did it. What an an incredible miracle. I don't want to devalue the miraculous in this situation. However, I believe that the point is not just the miraculous thing that happened. I believe the point is a little bit deeper if we would be willing to see past the pomp and the circumstance and the supernatural amazing thing that has happened to dive a little bit deeper to see what it is that's going on. These women, these widows prepared a place in an upper room. They took Tabitha's body, they washed it. They did not prepare her body for burial because they had never had any intentions of burying her. 
They took her into the upper room because they weren't worried about a dead body being in such an intimate place because they had no intentions of her being dead long. Now, here's what's crazy. You and I would see this and we'd go, that is some absurd, ridiculous, not founded on any kind of factual basis kind of faith. The point of this story that Jesus wants to get across to us today, that the Spirit of God wants for us to understand today, is not that we need to then, the next time somebody in our family dies, just hose them off in the backyard real quick and take them up to the bedroom and call, call the preacher man to come up and do something about it. Please don't do that. I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't know that I'm going to answer that call. I will pray from a distance. I've seen my fair share of dead bodies. They don't freak me out. But if you expecting me to bring a dead body back to life, I'm not your guy. God can do what he wants to do if he wants to. But I ain't trying to develop the reputation of being the dude that brings dead people back. I ain't trying to be like, you know, the sixth sense guy. I see dead people. Here's the lesson and the truth that I believe that God wants us to understand. These widows had a foolish faith because of Tabitha. These women had a remarkable faith in Tabitha's God because of Tabitha's faith in action in response to her God to the lost, the least, and the left behind. Tabitha had a never settled kind of faith. And as a result, these widows had a greater faith. Here's the truth it reveals. And this is the invitation that Jesus is extending to us today. A truth that we need to hold on to tightly if we want to be a never settle type of believer. And the truth is this. That saved people serve people so that served people can be saved. What does compassion look like in a modern context? It looks like if you have been saved and changed by Jesus, you live your life at a rhythm and a pace and an awareness in such that God could intervene into your structure, into your schedule and highlight somebody that needs to be served. And you as somebody that's been saved by Jesus would say, yes, Lord, I will go serve them. I don't know what's possible. I don't know why you're leading me to serve in this situation or to serve this person or to help in this pain point. But Jesus, I will respond in obedience. And as I serve... Maybe just maybe the people that I serve could hear and see the power and the love and the authentic transformation that Jesus brings. And maybe just maybe they could respond to the deeper issue that is beneath the physical need, which is their spiritual need and the spiritual darkness and the spiritual void of being spiritually dead and encountering the one who can make them spiritually alive. And after making them spiritually alive, Jesus can lead them in the trajectory of having life and life abundant. Listen, God is not calling us to be individuals who have pity for others. I don't believe pity should be a part of the vernacular of a never settled believer. Instead, what Jesus is doing today is he is inviting us to be individuals who are filled with compassion and moved to action. And every single one of us in response to this truth, in response to this message, are gonna have to spend some time in prayer. Lord, what does this mean for me? 
How might I be able to respond according to what God has taught, where God is leading, where, where the Spirit of the Lord is, is, is moving me and nudging me on a Tuesday at 3.15 to be a never settled kind of believer? And what does it look like for me to serve somebody right now in my workplace and in my neighborhood and at Price Chopper? I don't know. I can't, I can't answer that because I'm not the Spirit of God. But what God has done as we consider through this is, is we have to not only look at it, what does it mean for us as individuals, but we also need to ask the question, what does it look like as a collective of individuals, which is what the church is, what does it look like for a collective of individuals to say, well, Lord, if we're here, how might you use us to serve people? As a collective of individuals, we have to be willing occasionally to ask the question, God, what would it look like if we all came together to do something? What could we do together that we never could do apart? When I think about Tabitha's story, I see how her, how her absence was felt by those around her. When we were in a season of quarantine and we weren't gathering as a church, I remember coming to God several times. God, if, if, if Discover Church never opened the doors of, its, of, of our church again, would anybody in the community who doesn't attend Discover Church, would they care and would they notice? Listen, let me ask you this question. Have you, as a follower of Jesus, ever allowed yourself to ask the question, Lord, if I were gone tomorrow, would there be anybody in my world? Would they feel the absence of the presence of Jesus and the posture of being a servant as Jesus was? Would there be anybody who would notice my absence because somebody's not serving them in the name of Jesus like they used to? Now, that's a really hard question. When I think about that question personally, it's challenging. When I think about that question as a pastor of a church, it's challenging. And if I can just be honest with you, when I was praying to God and asking God that question, would anybody outside of our church notice or care if we never opened our doors again? I didn't like the answer because the answer was no. I didn't like the answer because I always desired for our church to be a life-giving church, a church that we can, we can stand and shout to the community, listen, we love you, Jesus loves you. We don't want something from you, we want something for you. We wanna be a life-giving church that people would feel like when they've encountered Discover Church, it would feel like a breath of fresh air. But I wasn't depressed by the answer because God also helped me to understand, listen, you, at that point, we were 18 months old. There, no 18-month-old child can just get up and run a, a marathon. There's steps of maturity that need to be taken. And so whether you're here and, and you're considering that question for what that means for you personally, or you're here and you're, you're invested and you're committed to being a part of Discover Church, I don't want you to be depressed by it either because God is now bringing revelation. He's bringing awareness to it. And now he's providing an opportunity where we can think differently about how we live and about what we do. And I'm encouraged and I'm excited today because in the same way that God gave Tabitha through her gifts and abilities of vehicle to be able to serve the community around her. God has given us a vehicle for us to serve the people around us. In response to 
my time spent with prayer with the Lord, we began to make some changes as a church when we came out of quarantine. We made some changes to our summer outreach event that we call Love KC and, and, and revamped that. We introduced a new Christmas outreach called Christmas for the Northland where we, we blessed people with opportunities to be able to get some Christmas decorations and, um, and to be able to have, uh, you know, just kind of a fun Christmas family environment so that we can encourage and bless them. And as we did it this last year, we heard people who were saying, listen, I didn't know that I was gonna be able to have Christmas for my kids this year. I'm so thankful that this year we can. But I also knew that God wasn't done with Discover Church and God had some next steps for us to take. Now, what you need to know is from the outset of our church, when we launched the church, we never felt like God was calling us to recreate the wheel. We never felt like God was calling us to start a church where we would immediately start a food pantry or a clothes closet or any of those kinds of things. Instead, when we started the church, we said, listen, we don't have a lot. So instead of trying to create something and being in competition with other people who were already doing this, what if instead we went out and tried to meet the leaders and the, the organizations in the community in the name of Jesus that are doing these things at a really high level? And God led us to uh, meet some people at Hillcrest Platte County. He led us to meet some people at Resource Health. Um, and he led us to meet some people at a Turning Point Ministries. All of these organizations are doing different things to serve the community. They have responded to a pain point in the community and they said, listen, God, we don't have a lot, but this is what we do have and we wanna be used by you to impact the practical, tangible needs that people have so that their physical needs can be met and so that we can have an opportunity to be able to share and show the love of Jesus as we do it. So, as I felt like God was leading us to another step, I didn't really know what to do. And so I went around and started having some conversations with these partners that we have. I began to ask them, what do you see as the biggest, the, the next pain point, the next thing that's not being addressed in our community? I talked to uh, Donna's at Hillcrest Platte County. I talked to Kathy at a turning point. I spent some time um, talking with a social worker, not necessarily uh, in this last season, but I remember a conversation I'd had with a social worker uh, at my kid's school asking a very similar question. And without fail, every single one of them said the same thing. The biggest pressing issue that's not currently being addressed are the needs that people have who are facing unexpected homelessness particularly women and families who last night had a safe, warm place to stay, but tonight they don't. Now, there are organizations like Hillcrest that have a phenomenal program where they'll walk with you for an extended season to be able to help you get your feet under you and, and to do some different things like that, but they have a, a fairly lengthy process to be able to qualify for the program. They got to wait for beds to open up and all that kind of stuff, but apparently nowhere in the Northland was anybody doing anything to try to come into the pain point of somebody needs a warm, safe place to sleep tonight. But as I spent some time with Kathy McIntyre from A Turning Point, she began to tell me about a new initiative that they were getting ready to uh, jump into. They saw this pain point and they were getting ready to launch something that they would call their guest house. And I asked Kathy to describe for me how, how would she describe the guest house to somebody who doesn't have any clue what it is. And this is what she said. She said, our guest house is a program aimed at assisting the houseless in our community, making forward steps towards full self-sufficiency. 
Currently operating as a day center, individuals, families, uh, individuals and families can access showering and laundering facilities, get a hot meal, utilize computer and internet, and receive case management services. And as soon as special use permit process is finished, the guest house will provide overnight short-term emergency shelter for families and single women. Can I just tell you, church, as soon as Kathy said that, God just ignited something in my soul and said, there, here's the beacon, here's the shining light, go this way. And so we began to have some conversations together and began to ask Kathy, Kathy, what would it look like for us to help you? And, and, and how could a church come alongside and put gas into your tank so that you can go further faster into meeting this need that, that exists in our community? And as we talked about it, we began to settle and solidify on what things would look, would look like. And so I'm excited to introduce to you today our second initiative in our Never Settle vision to see 250 people's lives change is this. We are going to help address the problem of homelessness in the community by partnering with the Turning Point Ministries to provide immediate overnight housing for homeless families and women. What does this mean? What does this look like? Well, this means that we've pledged over the next two years $150,000 to a Turning Point. And I asked them, hey, what, what would $150,000 do? And they go, well, we currently have capacity for about 30 beds. We believe that with $150,000 and some divine inspiration from the Spirit to help multiply that a little bit, we believe we might be able to double our capacity from 30 to 60 beds and, and double the impact we can have in the community. Here's the second thing that we're pledging to a turning point. Because I told Kathy, I said, Kathy, listen, I don't want this to be a thing where, where we come in as a church and just write a check and say, y'all be blessed. Y'all go do awesome things. Praise God for you. No, 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 no. Kathy, I feel like God is calling Discover Church to plant our flag in the ground, to do something, to get our hands dirty, to care about and to see and to have compassion for the lost, the least, and the left behind. Would there be a way that we could be involved with it somehow? And what I love is anytime you talk to nonprofit organizations and leaders and you, you talk to them about, do you need volunteers? The answer is always yes before you finish the question. And she said, yes, absolutely, please and thank you. Praise God already and Amen. So we're not just pledging church, we're not just pledging $150,000 over the next two years, we're pledging willing and ready and capable volunteers so that we can come alongside of them through the construction process, through the build-out process, through the ongoing ministries that they're currently doing to meet the needs of people in our community, and so that we as Discover Church are saying, listen, we see a need, we're going to do something about it. We're not going to have pity, we're going to have compassion. We're not going to be like the religious leaders and the Pharisees who go, oh, that's so bad, I'm sorry for you. No, we're going to be like Jesus and we're going to step into it. We're going to be like Tabitha and do something about the needs that the people in our community have so that they can know that God sees them, God loves them, God cares for them. And I, we may not have a whole lot, but what we do have, we want to bring to the table so that they can be blessed. That's what God's calling us to do. Why would we do this, church? Because it should matter. Because if all we ever do as a church is to show up in this beautiful building that we get to lease and set up our chairs and sing real loud and leave, if that's all we do, then what we do is a waste of time. Why would we do this, church? 
because for whatever reason, God seemed fit to plant you here and to plant me here and to plant us here, not just so that we can see how many people we can get in the room, but so that we can be sent out to see how many people that we can serve. Why should we do this, church? Because God wants to challenge you, because God wants to challenge me, because all of us in our own ways are self-righteous hypocrites that look a lot more like Pharisees than they do like Jesus sometimes. And because God wants to challenge you and he wants to challenge me and he wants to challenge our church. But the measuring stick of the church is not how many people walk through the doors. The measuring stick of the church is how many people are sent out the doors with an eye towards serving people in the name of Jesus. Why would we do this, church? Because we believe that saved people serve people so that served people can be saved. Now listen, this is going to take some time. They're currently in the, li- the, the, the zoning process and getting approval from the city, so it's going to take some time. I promise you we're going to keep you up to date as you go. But listen, I just want to issue a couple things right now that you can do right now. If you are a business owner, if you are a contractor, if you work in the construction space, I want to challenge you right now. Would you pray about how God might use you? God might use your influence, your resources, and your business to partner with an organization like a turning point that's making a dent not only in the physical needs of our community, but in the spiritual darkness of our community. Would you consider praying about, God, how would you use my business, my company, the things that I have access to, to come alongside of a turning point so that maybe they can take what resources they have and I can donate some things along the way so that we can multiply it and you can have more of an impact because of it. The second thing I'm inviting you to do today is that if you are here and you have a heart, just naturally, you have compassion, you have a burden for the lost, the least, and the left behind. If you are particularly aware or, or moved by the problem of, of homelessness within our community, you don't have to wait two years until this whole thing is done. You can start today. Kathy is here. Some of her team is here. They're going to be in the welcome tent right after the service. So when we leave here and we're getting things ready for baptism, I want to invite you, please, would you go to the welcome tent? Would you talk to Kathy? Because I promise you, Kathy has has ways today. You don't have to wait till next week, next month, next year, or the end of the Never Settle Vision. You can get involved right now this week and start using whatever it is God's put inside of you to be able to bless some people like Tabitha did. You don't have to wait. Now listen, I've told you over and over again that this never settle vision, that what God is doing is he is providing a vision that demands divine intervention. What does that look like? Well, it looks like me on faith... It looks like we, on faith, pledging $150,000 we don't currently have to an organization that's doing an awesome thing because God told us to. You want to talk about feeling uncomfortable when you sit at the table with that conversation saying, I feel like God's leading us to do that, but I can't write the check yet. The look on Kathy's face when we had that conversation, she was like, okay. This is our second initiative, church. And this is one of many reasons why we continue to talk about this never settled vision of seeing 250 people's lives changed by Jesus over the next two years. It's also the reason why I'm asking you to continue to show up, to continue to pray, to get connected to a small group so that you can begin asking God, God, how might you use me 
to advance this vision so that more people can know you. It's the reason why we've given you resources in your guidebook where you can begin the spiritual process now of asking God as you think about your finances, you think about your generosity. Because individually, I I don't know many of us that could just write a $150,000 check, but if we all come together, I believe we could do something together that's bigger than we could ever do apart. That's why March 20th is gonna be such a big day on Commitment Sunday as we as we think about and pray through what our financial commitment over the next two years is gonna be, that we're gonna come together and each of us individually are gonna respond and then collectively, we're gonna be able to say, God, this is what we're trusting you for because we believe you called us to be a force for good. You've called us to continue to be pioneers, not to settle, not to go, ooh, we made it, let's kick our feet up and let's enjoy, let's relax for a little bit. No, God is continually inviting us and calling us in this season to take the next step of faith so that we can be the pioneers that will blaze a trail so that somebody else might be able to respond to the love of Jesus the way that we have. That's what God is calling us to do. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.